Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Rest is History. Yesterday we were talking paganism, horned gods, mother goddesses, Wicca, and the world of 20th century witchcraft. And today we'll be digging back a bit further into that history with the same guest, Professor Ronald Hutton from the University of Bristol, who says nobody should be considered a world expert, but since it's our podcast, we can decide. (laughs) And I think if we want to crown him the world expert, we will, and and we have. So, um, Ronald, what can we say with any certainty about pagan religion can we can we talk with certainty about it i just removed my crown again (laughs) i'm stubborn on this um the answer is it depends which pagan religion you're discussing anything prehistoric is anybody's guess because we only have material remains and they are mute So you can reconstruct all sorts of religious scenarios, but also social scenarios and political scenarios from the same evidence. And also for Northern Europe, it's extremely threadbare because we don't have any written sources before Christianity. We have quite a lot for certain places like Scandinavia and Ireland, which is Christian, but talking about pagan times. But we don't know how reliable it is. But we have a huge amount of evidence for the great classical civilizations in the Mediterranean, where you actually have written sources with which you can interpret the material remains, and, and lots of art of different kinds representing rituals and deities. So we actually can say certain say things with absolute certainty. But to, but to just jump jump in, I know Tom's got a question in a second, but just to jump in on that. Are we not, is there not an argument that we are so remote in time and in kind of mental distance that even though we have, let's say, all this Greek art and all this fantastic sort of Greek literature, it's very, very hard for us to, I mean, we can know what people were doing, but we don't necessarily know what they meant by it or what what was going on in their, in their imagination while they were doing it. Um, we, we can actually say this, I think, if only because they argued over it. Uh, Greeks would argue over anything. Right. And, and so actually the Romans, but more as intellectuals. You get an entire book by the, the most long-winded and pompous intellectual of, uh, Julius Caesar's Rome, who's Cicero, uh, on the nature of the gods in which that's he- a bit harsh. I think that's absolutely, I, I've been waiting all this podcast for somebody. I find he's so vain and pompous, isn't he, Ronald? Uh, I'm, af- I'm afraid that's true. I mean, he also, he writes an appallingly difficult Latin and any schoolboy who's tried to translate Cicero just yearns for somebody else. But anyway, he writes a book about the nature of the gods in which he discusses every theory that's being uh, aired about the divine and his time. So you can actually look at the arguments. So you don't just get people doing things without explaining them. 
which is the case in some other civilizations. You actually get people trying to explain what they're doing and wondering why and talking about it. So I think you do have windows into their souls. But Ronald, a, a very, very simple question here from Dick of Axe, who asks, what is paganism? And, and if I could just kind of broaden that out, I mean, the, the, the idea of a pagan is a, is a Christian one, isn't it? Yes, it is. But it's a very handy term. It's, it isn't needed until Christian times because everybody was a pagan. Right. But once you've got Christians, paganism does become a separate category of religion. It's nice to have a term for it. And what's more, the term is not pejorative. It's actually quite specific. Uh, we've only really got to the bottom of what it meant in the 1990s. Uh, for a long time, it was thought it meant a country dweller, a bumpkin. Um, then we realized that couldn't be right because it was coined when most urban people were still pagan. And then it was thought it meant a civilian, somebody not enrolled in the army of Jesus, which again has a slight aspersion to it. But now we realize it just means people who carry on the religion of the Pargus, which is the local Roman unit of government. In other words, those who follow the old religions, the rooted religions, the local religions, instead of the brash, new, missionary, aggressive religion of Christianity that transcends lands and boundaries. And as a definition of the pre-Christian religions of Europe and the Near East, as an umbrella term, it works perfectly. Okay, so so um, we need this word because basically... Christianity is is emerging in late antiquity at the, towards the end of the Roman Empire in the West, um, endures in Byzantium. And there's a, a very obvious question, uh, which I guess is anyone who's been to India, for instance, where gods that were worshipped centuries, thousands of years ago, are still worshipped to this day. It, it's absolutely oh. focused. And this is from, uh, inevitably, Stefan Jensen, um, who honestly we he just won't stop asking questions but they're very good questions so keep them coming stefan why did christianity totally eradicate pre-christian religion in europe why aren't there any pagan remnant communities left in europe after the middle ages so i guess that's the big question why why was you know you in yesterday's episode you're basically saying that there are no kind of pagan continuities that run through the middle ages in into into modernity part perhaps from the kind of will we'll come to the, the one tradition that might um but why is it so successful what happens you can answer that question most easily by panning back to look at the world because christianity is not unique in world religion it's one of a very unusual but extremely powerful subset of religions which we call world religions. In other words, religions of salvation, religions with a general message for humanity, carried by people who think humanity will be improved everywhere by converting to their religion. Uh, Islam's another, but also uh, branches of Buddhism, Confucianism. Uh, and these religions are very effective steamrollers. Uh, everywhere where they go, where they reach rooted indigenous immemorial religion, they tend to wipe it out. And they wipe it out in two ways. One is by converting the local leaders, by offering them an enhanced role and also a place in the afterlife. And so that way you behead the traditional religions, which were carried on by the local political and social leaders. And that's exactly what happens in Europe. You go for the kings or the emperors and the rest follow. But also there's a psychological thing that there's simply nothing inherent in indigenous religion to stand up to a religion of missionary work and conversion. There's no tradition of answering these things because you've never had to. And so they tend to go over because they have nothing inherent in them that tells them they can resist, that habituates them, which is why uh, later when indigenous religions are revived, which happens all over the world. It's not just a, a British or a European thing. They tend to be a lot tougher and take on some of the attitudes and the techniques of world religions. And that's right. just... So, what, right. Yeah. So yesterday you were talking about this this gospel, uh, the, the gospel of witchcraft, and you talked about conversion. So there are kind of echoes there of, of what Christian missionaries were doing. Yes, that's right. Uh, Paganism never has scriptures. 
because pagans are not religions of the book. They're religions of ritual and contact with the natural world. Uh, so the term gospel or scripture applied to paganism is an imposition on it yeah. from an alien language. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that at the present day, uh, although sometimes particular writers market their books, mostly to Americans, with titles like the Bible of the Witches or whatever, uh, the sacred writings of modern pagans are books of ritual. There's no theology there at all. Right. There are no laws uh, telling humans how they be- behave in relation to the divine as opposed to each other. So it remains a different concept. Of yeah, but that, but that is a continuity, though, isn't it? That is a, I mean, that, oh, is, that a deliberate, yeah. is that a deliberate attempt to, to, to preserve the spirit of, of original paganism? It, it may just be a natural thing to do, because if you're going to be pagan, you have to model yourself on ancient paganism to some extent. And there are just certain things that are bred into it, uh, like not having gospels or scriptures, but also having feminism, environmentalism and personal yeah. choice. Yeah. Could, could I, the, two, the, uh, just before we go to a break, um, there are two kind of uh, traditions that people have argued did survive from um, pre-Christian times, pre-Islamic times into the modern. One of them uh, is raised by Joshua D. Terry, who asked, what should we make of pagan iconography in early and medieval Christianity, such as the green man? Does it reflect a covert resistance or intentional co-option? And I suppose also there's the, the Sheila gigs, aren't there, which are um, ladies not being polite, which you pick, you get in churches and so on. You're being very coy about I am. Tom is very coy. This is a family podcast. Um, <laughs> well, let, 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 let me put it uh, in a plainer way, but one that still shouldn't be offensive. Uh, green men are enigmatic faces gushing foliage, often from the nostrils and mouth, or framed in foliage. And Sheila gigs are much rarer, but they're still spread over Western Europe. And they are unclothed women squatting facing the observer in a way that emphasizes their sexuality. Uh, and these are indeed, at first sight, very weird figures to find in medieval churches. Uh, unfortunately, although I think there are as I said yesterday, continuities between ancient and modern paganism. These church figures don't seem to be those anymore, uh, largely because of research in the 1980s and 1990s. The idea that they were pagan images in churches is a product of the 1930s. It wasn't floated by experts in medieval art or indeed in the Middle Ages at all. It was produced by folklorists looking at churches Ma- now. Margaret Murray was one of them, wasn't it? The, um, Margaret the Murray about game. Uh, she yeah. uh, was the one who proposed the Sheila gigs. And it was an aristocrat called Lady Raglan, who in her one significant publication coined the term, the green man, taken from a pub sign for uh, the foliate heads. Uh, we now have the research done. The green man comes from India. He is originally a pagan motif from India, from Hinduism but becomes a decorative one, but then travels along this vast information superhighway called the Arab Empire, which stretches from the Indus Valley all the way to the Pyrenees. And it arrives in Spain, where which is still largely Islamic, gets into Christian monasteries there and spreads as a decoration for monks' manuscripts across 10th century Western Europe, and then gets into churches. And as far as we can see, yeah? Yeah, it's purely decorative. It has no... Yeah, as far as we can see, it actually has no meaning. It's simply a decoration. That's, I uh, love that. I, it's attractive, I mean... <laughs> and you can put it... It has different moods. You, It's especially suited to being put on on various bits of churches, like timpani and yeah. uh, bosses, roof bosses. Uh, it's different with the Sheila gig. She's part of a package. But the name is Irish, incidentally, but she doesn't start in Ireland. You just find her most commonly there. Uh, she starts in France in the 11th century as part of a package of movements for a decorative tradition we call Romanesque. And they're in pilgrimage churches along major pilgrim highways, and they teach moral lessons. And so the moral lesson of the Sheila gig is sex is repulsive. 
don't think about it, think of higher things, which is why the lady's concerns are pretty well always grotesque. Right, they're, so they're really unappealing. These are so, not so designed to put you off rather than entice you. That's it. But, uh, and it's quite a big but, I said that they're more common in Ireland now than at least in survivals than elsewhere. And in Ireland, they do seem to have a slightly different significance, which could be plugging into native paganism, uh, because they're found on secular buildings a lot more than they are elsewhere, and also in places where the human eye can't see them. And there does seem to be a recorded Irish folk tradition that a woman exposing herself would frighten off evil or a curse from... Uh, right, so it's kind of like the evil eye. Um, yeah, that's right. It's an antidote to the evil eye. But okay, be- so, so a possibility there. Sorry, sorry, Dominic, I was interrupting you. I was about to say, before we go to a break, though, that, that surely raises a much bigger question, which is how much does... So the, the in, in the f- sort of our folk imagination, if you like, in the popular imagination, there is now a sort of... Uh, among people who who've never not read up on all this there is this sort of vague sense oh christianity must have incorporated lots of elements of pre-christian religions and they survive and and there are lots of pagan bits of 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 the christian calendar and all this sort of stuff i mean halloween people often think this about halloween don't they is that true did medieval christianity have lots of pagan had it taken over and incorporated like when people often ask about the yule log and all these kinds of things is there any truth in that yes yes and yes uh i should have covered this earlier but i knew i was going on a bit anyway uh one of the ways in which world religions succeed is not just they stamp out the old faiths but they or the old traditions but they absorb huge quantities of things from them which is why, say, Tibetan Buddhism is riddled with deities and images from the pre-Buddhist religions. And in Christianity, even the very form of churches is taken over from pagan forms, the basilican shape of early Christian churches, hangings, incense, altars, carvings, sculptures, statues, uh, icons in general. You know, all this is a direct takeover from the old religions. And uh, we haven't even started upon the folk customs. And in many ways, uh, developed Christianity just substitutes a Christian version for old religion. Instead of having many goddesses and gods, you have many saints of both sexes who patronize, look after the very things that pagan goddesses and gods did. In ancient paganism, seasonal festivals are the great religious occasions. The same is true of medieval Christianity. In ancient paganism, sacrifice, the offering up of uh, foodstuffs to the deities, is the central religious rite. In Christianity, it's offering up the sacrifice of the mass. The foodstuffs concerned are the body and blood of the saviour. And it goes on and on and on like that. This is how world religions succeed. Ronald, uh, uh, we've talked about so so the, maybe the kind of traditions that pass from, from paganism through Christian Europe. On the topic of, of other kind of slightly more highbrow ideas, um, kind of philosophical ideas coming from late antique paganism, um, could we go to the Middle East and one intriguing city, which basically where, where if there were pagans there, uh, into the late mid, in, into the middle ages, they had to survive not only Christianity, but also Islam, which is kind of slightly more robust in its attitude towards ideas of idolatry and paganism, perhaps even more than, than Christianity. And that's the city of Haran, which was the city of Karai, which, um, enthusiasts for Roman history will remember is the place where, where Crassus gets defeated by the Parthians. And this, this city Haran supposedly right the way up into what the 10th, the 11th century preserved a, a large community of pagans who kept there both the practice of, of, of pagan worship and also kind of ancient traditions, philosophical pagan traditions, which people have argued were adopted by by Muslim scholars, and then these traditions passed into into Western Europe uh, and and so on. It, could you just talk a bit about that? Yeah, um, if you're going to look for medieval pagans in Europe and the Near East, there are two places to which you go. They're very separate. Uh, one is Haran in Syria, 
as you've mentioned, its ruins are still there in the desert. And the other is uh, Lithuania in the northeast of Europe. And indeed, Lithuania lasts a lot longer than Haran. Haran is uh, a Near Eastern city which becomes uh, a major Arab capital for its area. It's now in the southern part of Turkey politically. And it seems that there is uh, a fascinating community of surviving pagans there until the 11th or 12th century, who follow a developed kind of paganism based at least partly on Greek philosophy. Where that came from, we aren't sure. There's lots of ideas. What happened to them, we don't know, except by the 12th century, they're gone. And by the 13th, the city is deserted. And some have argued that the idea of uh, the Sabians of Haram, because that's the denominational name the Arabs gave them, influenced some branches of mystical Islam, like the Sufis. That could be true. There are elements in common, or there may actually be no connection. It may be a coincidental resemblance. Lithuania, we know a lot more about because it goes on later. The Lithuanians are the last officially existing European pagans. Uh, they survive until the end of the 14th century, uh, largely because nobody wants to convert them locally. They all want to conquer them. And so the Grand Dukes remain pagan. And the Grand Duke stopped being pagan when, owing to uh, a fortuitous couple of marriage alliances, they inherit the Kingdom of Poland. And in order to get Poland, you've got to turn uh, Catholic. And so they do overnight. And so Lithuania slowly turns into a Christian state united to Poland. But it's quite an aggressive, uh, quite a viable medieval paganism of the sort you find surviving nowhere else. Uh, and it beats off Christian attacks. And do we know what the Lithuanians, what they believed? And do we also know why it's so resilient compared with other European paganisms? Uh, um, it's only resilient because nobody really wants to convert it, as said. Right. Uh, they keep attacking it in crusades in order to have an excuse for conquering it, except the pagans are so tough, they're able to beat off the crusades quite successfully, and indeed, ironically, to annex some of the lands the Crusaders have come to when they convert. As for the type of paganism, it had a pantheon of deities. Uh, uh, I've read all the sources in translation, which is now possible, and they're very confusing. Uh, the earliest sources show no dominant goddesses or gods in general for Lithuanians, just a wide range of local cults with a fascinating but hazy line in sacred snakes. <laughs> you really tend not snake. to find elsewhere <laughs> in, in Northern Europe. Uh, but uh, about 200 years after the conversion to Christianity, Lithuanian scholars come up with this established pantheon of universal goddesses and gods for Lithuanians uh, who've helped give birth to a new Lithuanian pagan religion at the present day or a revived one. Oh, right. There, there's a, there's a neo-paganism in Lithuania. Yeah, you, find, you find modern right. pagans now all over Europe, um, yeah. certainly in Lithuania. Uh, so the evidence is a bit puzzling. And that's, that's as much to go. It's all retrospective. Um, Ronald, just before we go to a break, and this is this is a kind of insane thing because it's a huge, huge topic. But if we're talking about paganism, we should we, we should just mention them. Oh, Dominic! Dominic needs an apotropaic charm to keep the demons of coughing at bay. Um, in in the in the fifteenth century, you get a revival, su- supposedly of pagan ideas, both in Greece and in Italy. So in Greece at Mistras with with this extraordinary figure Pletho who it has been thought revives the worship of the Greek gods. Um, and in, in Renaissance Italy with uh, Massilio Ficino and people like him, who likewise are thought to have kind of revived the worship of the, of, of the ancient gods, Platonism and so on. Um, can, can we call them pagans or are they operating still within a kind of Christian framework? I think they're operating still within a Christian framework, but they're trying to bring back pagan deities into it. 
They're trying to reintegrate them. Uh, and they're part of the same movement. Uh, Pletho or Plethon, Pleton, uh, helps give birth to the Italian Renaissance because his ideas get in there. And it's largely, he, actually, he goes on embassy, doesn't he, to Florence, I think. Yeah, he does. Right? Yeah. Uh, he actually goes there. And uh, Greek scholars fleeing from the Turks bring in large quantities of hugely important ancient Greek literature and Roman literature into Italy at just the right moment. So whether you call it a Byzantine or uh, an Italian Renaissance, and it's both, 15th century scholars are trying very hard to recover the knowledge of the ancient world and then surf on it. But I, I think the, the language here is difficult because they're pagans in a sense that they are honouring pagan deities but they're not in the sense they're trying to overturn or replace Christianity. They're trying to enrich it. Right. And okay. particularly in the case of medieval Christian intellectuals, long before this, since the 12th century, when the Arabs produced the first great wave of recovered ancient Greek and Roman texts, there's been this desire to put back the Olympian deities as rulers of planets, in other words, it's recognized that heavenly bodies have an influence on the earth, like the moon being linked to the tides. And the basis of astrology is the idea that the other heavenly bodies influence the world and so human life. And so if you reinstate those ancient deities, Greek and Roman, that are linked to planets as servants of the almighty God who control things on earth, you're giving them a huge amount of refreshed agency while keeping them on board as part of the Christian team. Right. Okay. That's that's absolutely brilliant. I think we should go for a break now. And when we come back, if we could go as far back in time as we can, say in Britain, let's look at Britain, let's focus in on paganism in Britain. What can we know about pre-Christian paganism in Britain? How far back can we push it? So we will see you in a few minutes. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are approaching the final lap of our canter around the, the course of paganism uh, with Professor Ronald Hudson from the University of Bristol. Um, Ronald, let's cut right to the chase, something you've written about. We had a question from a listener called Robbie Rippermonti, and he says, can we know anything for certain about the Druids? Only that they existed. <laughs> that <laughs> they were the experts in religion, spirituality, uh, religious ritual in Northwestern Europe at the dawn of history. Uh, and that's it. And they have this charismatic name of Druid as opposed to priest or soothsayer, which marks them off. But 
we have not a single word, as far as we know, of writing left by the Druids themselves describing what they did. And there's not a single artefact among the hundreds of thousands that have been recovered from the pre-Roman European Iron Age, which can definitely be linked to them. What we have instead are a small number of rather brief descriptions of them by Greek and Roman writers. And all of them are suspect for different reasons. Some are deeply admiring, but they may have been the work of dewy-eyed intellectuals living thousands of miles away who'd never met a druid. And rather more of them are deeply hostile, representing druids as bloodthirsty barbarian priests dyed to the elbows in human gore. So this is where wicker men come from, isn't it? Yeah, they could have been the work of uh, authors justifying the Roman conquest and expropriation of the lands held by Druids, especially as Druids featured in some narratives as resistance leaders to the Romans. So they're all suspect. There's a bit more body of evidence for those who notice it in the medieval Irish texts. Ireland matters because it's a society where actually had Druids. So you have descriptions of Druids by the natives themselves. Unfortunately, they're all from centuries after the conversion to Christianity. And we've no idea how good the information of the authors were. They could be making it up again. So in no case can we condemn a single ancient or medieval image of an ancient druid as inauthentic. But in no case can we accept one as fully reliable. That's why they're great to think with. And so the idea that Merlin was a druid? I think Merlin's a very bad fit for a druid. Uh, For a start, he isn't really human. He's the uh, offspring of a nun and a demon. And it's having uh, 50% demon blood that gives him (laughs) his magical powers. And he's also the advisor to a king who, in all his representations from the earliest until the late 20th century, is a devout Christian. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll... Finish with the Druids then. Um, but in, the, in, in the, the context of Roman Britain, you might have this idea that, um, you know, we have the Druids, we don't know really think about them. Then the Romans come, they write. So therefore, we must know loads about uh, what is going on in Roman Britain. But in your, your, your wonderful book, Pagan Britain, um, you, you describe um, a, a group of elderly women who were found at Kimmeridge in Dorset. Um, you'd had their heads chopped off their lower jaws removed, uh, put by their feet, and each one had been provided with a spindle. So what's going on there? Anybody's guess. Uh, <laughs> clearly, there's, there's a specific range of options. Uh, they're wise women who are being honoured after death with a particular right. And indeed, removing their lower jaw could be to allow them to speak even more freely to their descendants or to those yet living. Or they could be people suspected of witchcraft who've had their jaws removed so they can no longer utter curses and imprecations. They've actually been put to death. Uh, and the spindle is a symbol of those who weave spells to label them as bad. Now, these are extreme opposite cases. Uh, and you can find anything on the spectrum between. Uh, what I said before was we know an awful lot, uh, an agreeable lot about Greek and Roman religion. We don't know a lot about Romano-British religion yeah. in particular. Yeah. Uh, the Romano-British did not produce books that have survived to the present day. And they produced a large number of inscriptions, but they tend to be brief and enigmatic. Uh, so in Warwickshire at Wasperton, if you find a block, a slab of stone, which had a fire stag's antlers put on it, and then the word feliciter, for luck, engraved on it. You know, what's going on there? It's, it's I, anybody's guess. I mean, I, 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 I've always found the kind of the weirdness of, say, images of gods that, that people have no idea what they are actually much more kind of haunting than the attempts to reproduce, I don't know, kind of Mediterranean style classical statuary. So I always remember the um, the Cucolati, the hooded ones, uh, and they're shown on a, a frieze at Housestead's Fort on Hadrian's Wall. And I think I'm right, we, we have no idea really <laughs> who they are, what they represent or anything. Um, and I've always found them kind of more tantalising for that reason. 
I agree. And they're great to work imaginatively with at the present day for that reason. It's not just the hooded spirits, the genii cuculati, it's uh, whole categories of deity like the matres or matroni, the mother goddesses, who are three portly ladies uh, sitting in a row with goodies, usually fruit, bread, on their laps. Now, they're clearly givers of bounty, but we have no backstory for them. We have no mythology. They're incredibly popular with soldiers. Uh, maybe because soldiers need luck or soldiers get hungry yeah. or soldiers yeah. just miss their mums. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they come from probably the, the modern Rhineland or the Rhineland and spread out from there. But why or how, we've no idea. So once you're north of the Alps, you're in pretty mystifying territory, even under Rome. So if we know so little about Romano-British religion, and, and indeed the, 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 the folk religion, if you like, of, of Roman soldiers on the frontiers and so on, um, what can we say about the world before the Romans came? So, you know, when Julius Caesar and then later Claudius, when they pitch up in Britain, what are the people worshipping? Or do we just not, not know at all? We have a very dimly lit view of religion in Britain at that moment, because the Romans consecrate and adopt many of the deities and the shrines of the natives. So we have the names and the imagined appearances of a lot of pre-Roman goddesses and gods that survive into Roman Britain. And we can reconstruct something of the layout and the purpose of particular Iron Age shrines, because they're turned into Roman temples. But once you go back more than, say, 100 years before the Romans arrive, the lights just go out. Right. And it's, it's not just religion. It's anything uh, that requires knowing what people are thinking. So we have, after about uh, half a millennium, no real idea of society. Uh, we have no idea of gender relations. We have no idea of political structures. And by the time you go back 2,000 years, you could be looking at matriarchy, patriarchy, aristocracy, monarchy, petty chieftains, democracy, oligarchy, or all the archies and ologies are at your service. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean we know nothing about them. Because of what technology can give us, we know more and more about their ethnicity, their diet, their technology, their living spaces, their handicrafts. It's anything that involves getting into the human mind that's still a closed mm. world. And presumably, I mean, so so Britain is, is famous for its prehistoric monuments and that they're stamped across the country, standing stones, barrows, kind of great hills in the case of Silbury Hill. Um, I, I guess the temptation is to kind of see them all as, as a kind of indistinguishable flux. But presumably... The different style of these monuments presumably must reflect different attitudes to the supernatural, to humanity's relationship to the cosmos. And they must be expression of kind of evolutions in that understanding that, that, that we simply can't get, get a handle on. We can't, but we can say that quite big things are going on in terms of religious change. Uh, it's intermittent. It happens about once every one and a half thousand years, but it's quite dramatic. So it's, there's really not much tradition of monument building apart from posts in Britain until the Neolithic arrives. Uh, that's the package of farming and making polished axes and pottery. <clears throat> but once that arrives, the British suddenly go monument mad uh, <laughs> for two millennia. And for about a thousand years, their main monuments are closed chambers of big stones or big timbers sealed in by mounds and, and often containing the human dead, the bones of which are taken out, taken out and worked with. So this is a religion which looks as if it's mediated at least partly through the dead. And then around 3000 BCE, BC, 5000 years ago, these monuments are abandoned. In fact, they're often blocked up to stop access. And instead, the British Isles go mad about round shapes. The dead are increasingly interred in round mounds 
and they're given goods as personal possessions, and they're sealed in. They're not contacted physically anymore. And people gather to worship, not at these great tomb shrines, but in spaces defined by circular barriers, uh, banks of earth, circles of standing stones, or circles of big wooden posts. Now, this is a massive conceptual change. It requires a, a religious reformation. But yeah. what the story is, is really for the novelist or the poet. A prehistorian can't go there. And you mentioned that, you know, the human remains. So there are kind of, I mean, kind of all kinds of strange, like, like they, I think in Kent, they would um, smoke their grandfathers and grandmothers and hang them from the roof, which presumably must be expressive of some, I mean, obviously dead. <laughs> um, it must be expressive of, of kind of something that we just can't it's like we've got the, the the hardware but not the software yes that's a very good parallel uh and it's the case throughout prehistory uh again people people react to prehistory with their guts with their instincts and really the classic division for hundreds of years is being between those who really see humanity as essentially decent and those who really see it as essentially depraved and so people who see humanity as essentially decent will find a, a set of human skulls and long bones interred around an Iron Age enclosure and say, this is revering the ancestors. These are great warriors or wise people whose mortal remains were revered like, revered like saints' relics after their death, often for a long time, and then interred as saints' remains are interred in churches in the enclosures to sanctify them. And those who have the opposite reaction will say these are clearly trophies taken in war or yeah, the remains yeah. of human sacrifices yeah. who are put on display to terrify everybody else or to make people feel good that they can trash marginal people in their society or tribal enemies. And then when everybody's got bored with them and have decapitated a few new people, they chuck them into pits to get rid of them. Now, these are not compatible visions. And they depend utterly upon instinctually opposed views of humans and will always have them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so pushing right the way back, um, that brilliantly brings us to um, one of the most famous sites in uh, in, in in prehistoric Britain, which is uh, Goff's Cave in Cheddar Gorge. So we're talking what thirteen hundred, twelve hundred BC, um, and and there there have been human remains have been found, which exactly exemplify what you're talking about. So there are, are, are skulls that have been turned into kind of drinking cups. And people say, is this respect for, you know, an elder or something, or is it evidence for cannibalism? And is there, is there a kind of any, any sense of a consensus on that? No, uh, it depends really, it depends by now because we're a, a multicultural society based on individuals, not even on the prevailing mood of the time or social norms, but on whims of individual archaeologists. And, and they tend to disagree. Uh, what we do about this, uh, I, I don't know. I, I have a strong view on one side of the debate, uh, because really we do have options. And the big options are to celebrate our ignorance and to say that anybody's view is as good as anybody else's. So let's have as many views as possible, because the law of average dictates the more you have, the more chance there is that somebody will be right. Even but you'll never know never, which one. You'll never know, though. Who, 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 but at least we're producing the range of possibilities. Uh, but there's still a strong tradition, which is uh, ingrained in Western scholarship of the gladiatorial approach that academics heatedly yeah. espouse. Duke it <laughs> and, and then do battle with each other. And the public looks on and decides the, the victor or the, the victor will emerge. And that becomes the orthodoxy until another strong contender emerges and kills off the, the reigning theory. Um, I actually loathe that, uh, A, because I'm a nice guy, uh, <laughs> but, but also because it seems to me rather intellectually dishonest. I mean, we are in a very competitive society. One of our major popular forms of entertainment is the competition. 
whether it's Big Brother, Strictly, the show for which they can only be one or one pair of winners. And it's to me, it's a lousy attitude to scholarship. Now, I was going to say, can we push it back even further? I mean, lots of people will want to ask this question. It's a subject very dear to Tom's heart. Stonehenge. Uh, that, I mean, that's the, the site that has generated more theories than any other. And, and it, I guess it, it, you'd say the same about Stonehenge, right? That there is literally nothing at all or very little that we can say with any certainty at all about what people were doing there, why they built it and what it meant. Yeah, correct. Uh, we're now brilliant at knowing exactly when it was put up, how it was put up, and by whom it was put up, but not why it was put up. Uh, and we've made some advances over the last half millennium. Uh, we know that it belongs to the British New Stone Age, uh, that it wasn't built by the Wizard Merlin, King Arthur, the Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings, or the Romans, which were all theories up for grabs until the 18th century. So we've made progress. But uh, as for what went on there, really, it's it's again up to people's instincts, where whether you're visualising a group of wise women clad in white robes, deeply in touch with uh, the secrets of nature and the movements of heavens, or a male equivalent, or... Uh, mixed sex, or you're visualising a bunch of savages covered in paint, whooping round the place with stone tomahawks and butchering human victims, because they're all they're both equally credible. I guess I guess what I would say is that that what one thing we we can know is that it clearly had some sacral, some spiritual, some kind of holy significance, and it wasn't just Stonehenge; it was the landscape around it as well, and that the fact that that this has survived is itself it gives us it gives us a sense of communion with the people who made it even if we have no idea why they were doing it and that that in in that you know thousands of years on is something i i would say precious and i would go so far as to say sacred yes and it fits in exactly with my celebration of our ignorance as being yeah. a stimulus to the creative imagination uh, in many ways, the more we know about the, the the physical beings who built it and their physical life, the more we can visualize them. But at the same time, it's open to any poet or novelist or dramatist to present their own view of our prehistory. And that should be honored. So we have a, a growing body of resources for an increasingly unfettered imagination. I think that's a really healthy place yeah. to be in and a multicultural, multi-faith society. And it should definitely be honoured by not building a large tunnel through uh, through the landscape. I knew let's you were going to bring that up. Uh, yeah, I was just going to bring it. Ronald, we've, we've, we've been whistling back through time. Could we end by looking at, at what I think, certainly in your book, you describe as the earliest evidence for for paganism i suppose for any kind of spiritual dimension within britain which is um the red lady of paverland as it was called but but she wasn't a lady was she where, where, where so paverland is on the gower peninsula um where what is the red lady and and how old is he or she it's a he he's a uh... A young man, five foot seven, five foot eight, who was buried around 34,000 years ago, which is certainly the oldest ceremonial human burial in this part of the world, Northwest Europe, and possibly the oldest in Europe. And by ceremonial, he was interred on the floor of a cave, which was then in a very striking golden cliff, it's still golden, uh, overlooking a broad plain stretching out to France, as France now is. And he was dressed in a two-piece garment, which was dyed bright red. So this is not a hunting outfit, it's a ceremonial garment, and seems to be associated with a mammoth skull, certainly associated with broken ivory objects, conical and carefully made in segments that look like wands, they, they, they have no practical use. They are ceremonial wands or scepters that have been ritually broken and placed over his body. Uh, now, by anybody's rendering, this is heavy-duty ritual. 
It's a very careful burial. His head was missing, which may have been due to later disturbance or may have been related to the nature of his death. But he's somebody given great honour. And the attire is, is that of somebody with a high ceremonial function. So this looks like, uh, and we can quibble over the term endlessly, uh, the, as, as we see it, the birth of British religion. And on that bombshell, <laughs> I can't thank you enough. Um, it, it's been an absolute tour de force. Well, uh, I was asked really, really well-informed, intelligent questions, uh, both by the two, especially by the two of you, but also by your followers. I, I think that one of the reasons why the two of you like me is that I'm a heavyweight academic who actually writes like a pop historian, uh, <laughs> not, not, not just in Going for Purple Passages, but uh, for covering an embarrassingly wide range of interests. Everything you write on this subject is so fascinating. Uh, I particularly recommend the Statues of the Sun for uh, as we go into winter. If you want to keep your spirits up, all kinds of uh, festive uh, paganism there. Um, and your most recent book, The Making of Cromwell, it's absolutely superb book. And, and you talked, I think, at the beginning of, um, of, of yesterday's episode about your love of the English countryside. And one of the really striking things about the making of Cromwell is it's brilliant, not only on Cromwell, but on the seasons and the flowers and the, the plants and the landscape of England. It's kind of very unexpected in a book about, um, about the Civil War. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Dominic, we are back, aren't we, on the 4th of November with a, a 5th of November special. Oh, with a preview of the gunpowder plot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, which is, of course, uh, one of the few, I guess, kind of modern British festivities, English festivities. Yes. Uh, something about which Ronald has also written, fascinatingly. And we yeah. may be name checking him. Checking I think him we will. Episode. I think we will. Okay. Thanks ever so much. All right. Thank you, everybody. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.